The Great Salt Lake is one of the cherished and iconic hallmarks of the state of Utah. Its waters, minerals, and biota provide ecological, economic, recreational, aesthetic, and spiritual values for those who live here. But our 25-year mega drought, coupled with activities that draw water from it, have placed lake water levels at a historic low point. We are in danger of losing critical habitat for millions of migrating birds, jobs in metal extraction, and irrigation water for our crops. But this grave situation is not unique to the Great Salt Lake. Other bodies of water around the world are experiencing similar dynamics. A graduate student from Utah State University visited Lake Aculeo, a sibling lake in Chile, which dried up entirely in 2018. His encounters with the causes and consequences of loss of this lake might help us understand future impacts of climate change and human activities in our bioregion. This is Undisciplined. I'm Nalini Nadkarni, and our guest today is Will Munger from Utah State University in Logan, Utah. Will, welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here. Will, I'm delighted you've made time to talk with us about your experiences and insights about this phenomenon of large lakes drying up on two different continents. But first, I'd like to introduce you to our listeners. Uh, Will's background is in anthropology, environmental studies, and community organizing. So uh, Will is really an excellent person to interview for our show, Undisciplined, because we love to highlight science that draws upon multiple disciplines and different ways of understanding our complex world. Will is in a PhD program at Utah State University, and he's doing research in climate adaptation science. Um, Will, before we get into the specifics of your work, could you give us a brief sort of context about the field of climate adaptation. What are one or two of the major questions that researchers in this field of climate adaptation are asking and trying to answer? So I am uh, part of the Climate Adaptation Science Program up here at Utah State, which is an interdisciplinary training program that brings together students from various different sciences to address complex challenges. Um, I work at the intersection of agricultural climate change and water management um, and bringing together some of the sciences from those different disciplines hopefully gives us the tools to think about some of our challenges like the Great Salt Lake. You know, typically in our program, we focus in on a particular research publication, you know, a peer-reviewed paper. But in this case, your insights are so up to the minute that the publication about this is yet to appear. But your recent experiences in this sort of parallel lake drying situation allows us here in Utah to think about water and climate change comparatively, both in Chile and in Utah. Well, a little background here is that this uh, past January, I had a fellowship in the Pathways program that brought me to Chile. Uh, this Pathways fellowship brings together watershed scientists from across North and South America uh, to look at particular what they call headwater dependent systems. Uh, these are systems like here in the Wasatch Front where our water are coming from mountains. And these systems are under threat from both climate change and the way that we use water. And so while I was down in Chile, I got to visit uh, this lake known as Lake Aculeo. Um, and this lake has dried up um, and is actually a bit further along in a slow motion environmental catastrophe, uh, one that there are some real lessons that we can learn from here in the Great Salt Lake. Got it. So what were some of the environmental factors that contributed to the, this lake drying up? 
Well, let me paint the scene a little bit. So Lake Aculeo is about 50 kilometers southwest of the the capital of Chile in Santiago. Um, The lake is about 4.6 square miles in 2011 and about 20 feet deep in 2011. And it went completely dry in 2018. When I was there in January, visiting with local farmers, ranchers, and hydrologists that are working on this issue, our team was on the lake bed, and I was watching these dust storms just sweep across this lake bed, actual tornadoes of dust being brought up into the air. And I just immediately thought of the Great Salt Lake, which is a lake that I've been on since I was a young kid growing up here in northern Utah. Um, And the parallels became um, really important. Um, and um, we can go into some of the details as to why that is, but that's kind of where Lake Aculeo is uh, located. It's a big basin surrounded by mountains um, and in, in a lot of ways kind of feels and looks like Utah. Got it. Wow. That must have been just an incredible experience to sort of think about our lake being like that lake in, in perhaps not the too dis- distant future. Um, what are some of the differences? Is that a salt lake or is that a freshwater lake? It's actually a freshwater lake. And yeah, Lake Aculeo, uh, and sometimes it's called a lagoon because it's rather uh, shallow. But um, this is a place that people would come to vacation. Um, it was a beloved you know, place that people would come in the summer months to go fishing and sailing and swimming. Um, and it supported agriculture that historically would be growing uh, small crops. Um, and there's um, actually uh, large fruit plantations as well. And um, this history of land use um, and water development uh, is actually the real drivers of what was causing uh, the lake to dry up. Um, We got to visit with uh, several climate scientists and watershed scientists working on this in Chile. um, And they had looked at, you know, is it climate change that is causing this lake to dry up? And Chile has been in a mega drought, uh, somewhat similar to what we've been experiencing in the sense that um, the long term um, uh, precipitation is just dropped, you know, and so that's what they're meaning by mega drought. It's not just one year, but it's years of consecutive drought, actually on the decadal scale. Um, But uh, when these scientists uh, looked at different models of how uh, the water is being used, what they're realizing is that um, it was actually water withdrawal and land use policy and development that was really driving uh, the desiccation or drying out of this lake. Wow. I I mean, that's so, so similar. I was just, as you were beginning to speak about this, I was thinking about salt air and all of these wonderful resorts that no longer exist on the Great Salt Lake. um, And that there must be some parallels there in terms of this shift from using the lake for recreation, for agriculture, for human use. And then in the case of Lake Akulea, this suddenly disappearing. That's right. And, um, you know, bringing up the Saltaire reminds me of a, a, an art action that was done by the Utah Youth Environmental Solutions Group uh, this past week, where they held a die-in on the, 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 the dried up lake bed of the Salt Lake to call attention to this ongoing environmental catastrophe or, or a, a, a environmental nuclear bomb, as the New York Times article said. Um, but um, this land use history and watershed management is really important to understand, um, and particularly how uh, the water code and uh, the water law um, allows these sort of environmental challenges or environmental problems to happen. Um, And that puts Chile and Utah in a similar place in that we're now trying to craft policies that can address these long-term water management challenges in the context of climate change. And that's a common situation that we find ourselves in. And that's why it's so important that 
we're building these uh, scientific networks to try to understand not only the hydrology and water management, but the integrated policy as well, um, because these are uh, what we call interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary challenges. No one scientific discipline alone has the sort of answers. And that's why it's so important that scientists not only work with each other across disciplines, but work deeply with society and policymakers to try to uh, create actionable science, science that we can use to address these problems we're facing. I'm wondering, I'd like to go back to Chile and Lake Aculea. I'm wondering if, if there was any sort of prediction about this. Were there any studies either within Chile or outside of Chile that that were predictive or sort of warning signs that this drying, this entire drying of the lake was about to happen? Well, that's a good question. You know, there certainly were warning signs, and oftentimes the people who were directly involved uh, with the management of the lake and agriculture were kind of our early warning systems. Um, uh, but uh, the, the challenge there is, is that even though people were noticing that the drying up was happening, there wasn't uh, the policy and on the ground science to help managers make better decisions. Um, so just to give you some specifics, our, our Chilean colleagues who, who studied this um, point to a couple uh, main drivers of the des desiccation. Um, uh, one is large scale fruit plantations. And even though they're using uh, drip irrigation and some uh, efficient practices, uh, they're exporting this cash crop out of the watershed. This is avocados. This is cherries. Um, and the parallel, obviously, in the Great Salt Lake would be um, the alfalfa that um, is exported outside of Utah. So, um, you know, I don't I think it's important not to um, just point our fingers and blame farmers because these farmers are making uh, the best decisions that they can under these larger economic structures. Um, and so uh, those economic structures are really what we should be thinking about in terms of what what creates incentives for what agricultural practices we use. The other main uh, driver that was identified by our Chilean scientists um, was the development of second homes and lawns in particular. And under Chilean law, uh, it allows for uh, the drilling of uh, domestic wells for um, these second homes uh, to water their grass lawns, um, but there was not integrated groundwater management planning. And so you have all these unregulated wells being drilled, you have this expansion of plantation agriculture, and you also have this long-term drought. And those three drivers combining were really the cause of what dried out Lake Aculeo. Wow, that was a really clear description of the challenges, I think, that face the Chilean population as they try to confront and mitigate these, these, these properties in this situation. But I think it also really emphasizes the need for the kinds of research that you and your team are doing, which is interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary, and being in, as inclusive as, of, as possible for scientific input to kind of weave together with the tendrils of policy and, and, and societal values. Definitely strongly agree. And um, actually, last week, uh, we had a visit from Governor Cox up at Utah State. Um, and um, he, he was here to um, kind of celebrate the uh, start of uh, the Institute for Land, Air and Water, which is a new institution at Utah State that hopes to better connect research and policy um, to create uh, better feedback loops. And uh, both the governor um, and the people that have made this institute possible um, really understand that we need this sort of uh, interdisciplinary and trans disciplinary research right now.
Fantastic. You know, that's very parallel to what what's going on here at the University of Utah, your companion sort of sibling university down the road here in Salt Lake City. Although we did not get a visit from um, Governor Cox, we have another a new interdisciplinary center called Nexus. And that really works to enhance and facilitate interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary research here at the university. So I'm delighted to hear that there's a counterpart uh, that considers natural resource use and so forth um, at our at, at Utah State University. Um, going back to Chile, I understand that Chile is going to be at the top of the list for countries that will be facing high water stress by 2040. What does that mean for Chile's population as, as you came to view it just during your short visit there? What do you see as implications and consequences for that? Well, you're absolutely right that um, across Chile, there are um, uh, communities facing water shortages from the north in the Atacate Desert all the way down to um, glaciers in the Andes that are under stress from climate change. Uh, Chile is certainly facing a number of uh, watershed issues. Um, and I think uh, an important thing to understand here is also uh, how Chile's uh, water policy has created um, some challenges that uh, people are trying to address right now. Um, and uh, part of that is um, the, the reality that um, there was a coup in 1973. Um, and uh, after that coup, uh, the constitution written under the Pinochet uh, government um, basically privatized water, um, made water into a commodity. Um, and uh, that has created all sorts of challenges in terms of um, uh, creating an economic system that helps develop water within the limits um, that exist naturally. And so, uh, for example, you have communities in the north of Chile where um, are, are literally having to truck in water, uh, drinking water for schools. At the same time, you have mining companies extracting water from that same watershed because they're allowed to do that under uh, this Pinochet-era constitution. Um, and so uh, some of the inequities that um, that situation caused has prompted huge social movements in uh, Chile uh, to demand a rewriting of the Chilean constitution. Um, in uh, 2019, uh, over 80% of the country voted uh, to rewrite the constitution. Um, however, this also points to a real challenge in crafting uh, long-term uh, policy change. Uh, this past weekend on the 4th of September, uh, Chilean voters uh, rejected a first draft of the rewritten constitution. Um, about 62% of 12.8 uh, uh, million voters uh, rejected the constitution and 38% uh, approved this new draft. Um, and uh, this was a huge constitution. There were over 388 articles in uh, the constitution, um, some of those particularly around water. One of the proposed changes was uh, recognizing the human right uh, to water, uh, water access as a human right, um, also creating new agencies to help manage water and, and address the climate crisis. Um, but uh, there was not the political will to pass this new constitution, so it goes back to the drawing board. Um, and you know the parallels in Utah are that um, you know we've had a long-term uh, struggle just to get the state of Utah to recognize the climate crisis, and youth activists have played a crucial role in uh, in pushing that politically. Um, however, uh, this past year, um, the legislator made some uh, pretty historic uh, legislation around water policy in Utah, which we should definitely get into. Um, but I think it does show the long-term challenge of uh, crafting water policy um, and the need for real robust public engagement to um, not only educate and engage people, but um, 
to keep doing that over time because these are uh, slow changes and also slow motion uh, environmental problems. And so it's important to not be discouraged, but to stay engaged. Fantastic. Um, well, let's let's bring us ourselves back here to Utah, uh, wondering about, as you mentioned, the water laws, the regulations, the policies regarding water in Chile are, are, are not conducive to conservation or to maintaining the health of, of those lakes and those water systems. And I'm wondering how that contrasts with our systems here. I know that the U.S. Geological Survey really does do extensive measuring of our river systems and groundwater systems. And, and we have extensive laws that regard um, uh, water rights of individuals and organizations and other entities. I'm wondering if you could sort of generally contrast and compare the legislation and policy about water use in Chile versus here in Utah? Um, in the West, uh, we're based on the doctrine of, of prior appropriation um, and beneficial use. And so uh, what that means is uh, first in time, first in right. Um, and uh, you don't necessarily own the water, but you own the rights to divert that water. Um, and this has been the basis of um, how our water policy and law has been set up. Um, this legislative session in, uh, in Utah, we saw some really uh, interesting changes. One bill I'll highlight is uh, HB 33. Um, and what this did is uh, recognize the importance of in-stream flows and creates more flexible mechanisms for farmers and ranchers to temporarily lease their water to state agencies like Division of Forestry and Fire um, and state sovereign lands. Um, and so why this is particularly important is that it creates more flexible tools for water managers to help get water to the Great Salt Lake um, and also recognizes the beneficial use of those in-stream flows, whether for aquatic ecology or um, uh, the migrating bird ecosystems or mitigating the dust and the public health issues that would be associated with the Great Salt Lake uh, drying up. So it's, it's, it, it is not a revolutionary change by any means, but it does allow for more flexibility. The other interesting uh, program that I'd highlight is the Great Salt Lake Watershed Enhancement Program. Um, this is, creates um, a, approximately $40 million trust. Um, and interestingly enough, it brings in uh, non-governmental partners like the Audubon Society and the Nature Conservancy uh, to help uh, bring this program together. Um, the other thing that I'd mention is, you know, in watershed management, they always say, you can't manage what you don't measure. And so the um, another piece of legislation was this integrated uh, Great Salt Lake watershed assessment. Um, and this is really trying to bring together researchers to figure out a water budget. You know, what are the numbers? What uh, Where's the water going? Um, and what can we do to help prevent the desiccation of the Great Salt Lake? And it's not just coming from uh, pati- you know, particular sectors. This is not just the environmentalists saying that. Um, you know, for example, uh, the LDS Temple up in Logan uh, let their lawn go dormant this summer to show that uh, water conservation is important. And I think that you know, just across the state, people are thinking about how can I contribute to this issue? What, what can I do? And I just think that's a really important time for scientists to, to step in and say, um, well, here's the research that, that we can do. And here's um, you know, maybe some help in evaluating you know, the effectiveness of some of these programs. So it's a, it's a challenging, but also a really compelling time. And if, if folks are listening, I would just say there's just a lot of opportunities to get involved. And so stay tuned. That is really hopeful. I love that, Will. Can you suggest any of the actions that we as individual citizens might take? 
Well, if folks are interested in getting involved, a great uh, opportunity is coming up here at the end of September. Um, the Environmental Humanities Program at the U is hosting a symposium uh, called The Great Salt Lake, Lessons of Art, Action, and Culture. Uh, this will happen on September 23rd at the Natural History Museum of Utah, and then uh, September 24th out on Antelope Island. Um, and if you just, um, uh, I think maybe we can drop a link in the show notes or um, uh, folks can just um, search for an environmental humanities symposium on the Great Salt Lake and, and find the information. But um, there's going to be um, a lot of different uh, speakers coming from different perspectives, indigenous leaders, scientists, uh, artists, and writers, uh, to really think about some of these deeper issues. And so I'd say that's a great opportunity coming up for folks to get involved. Um, there's also a number of organizations, like you mentioned, uh, the Audubon uh, Nature Conservancy, Save Our Great Salt Lake, Sageland Collaborative. Uh, you, uh, there's just a, a number of organizations. Uh, and and um, I, I think that that sort of diverse uh, ecosystem uh, of movement is a really important uh, thing. And so there's definitely a niche and a, a place for everyone to get involved. Fantastic. Well, Will, you've made a fantastic case for interdisciplinary scientific studies, that is, scientists from different disciplines and different parts of science, natural sciences, social sciences, uh, talking and working with each other. You know, in reading about your work and just this conversation over the last 20 minutes, um, dealing with, you know, the drying up of a whole lake down in Chile, but then these sort of rejuvenating ideas of inclusion and of of commitment to maintaining the health of our lake, I guess I, I'm feeling a combination of both despair and hope. Despair because of the enormity and the complexity of these problems, but also hope because people, you know, including you, are gathering information and galvanizing attention about it. And I'm wondering what your own take is on this tension between despair and hope as you confront these complex issues. Well, there was a, a quote from uh, Ruthie Gilmore that was really inspiring recently, which is uh, freedom is the ability to choose what we will be responsible for. And I think uh, around Utah, I'm seeing a number of people choose to be responsible for future generations, choose to be responsible for um, our more than human kin on the Great Salt Lake. Um, and I think that that um, choosing to be responsible um, is really what, what gives us hope. Um, and uh, there are definitely... Uh, these have been a tough couple years, and I think there are some tough years ahead. But I think if we figure out ways to work together, uh, think deeply and critically about our history, um, and imagine new ways to to relate to each other and to um, future ecosystems, future uh, climate patterns, um, I think that the, the 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 hope is in the details. I guess is what I'll say. Mm, that's beautiful. That is beautiful. Um, now, as we come to the end of our conversation, I'd like to ask a little bit about you and your career. Um, I'm wondering where you're headed professionally, whether you're planning to pursue an academic career or something else. I mean, what will the Will Munger of 2032 be doing? Well, this will be a great interview to come back to to see how it works out. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. <laughs> I, would, I think the, the jobs that I'm interested in uh, don't exist yet, and I think it's up to us to make them. Um, I think that um, I chose to come back to a place uh, like Utah State because uh, it is a land-grant uh, institution, and our job is to serve the people and uh, ecosystems of Utah. Um, it, uh, institutions like Extension are some of the most trusted in the state. They work day in, day out with farmers and ranchers on really applied science. And I think that's where I want to be, is doing that collaborative and 
applied science, um, and whether that's in academia or um, with nonprofits or with social movements, I think it'll be a healthy mix of all of them. Well, I'm sure whatever you do, you will be a success at based on what you have done so far as a graduate student. Um, and you've presented such, you know, such a passion for this work, and it is such important work, Will. And I'm sure that many of our listeners, especially our younger listeners, are thinking, wow, you know, what a great job this guy has, and how could I do what he's doing? Um, I was wondering if you have any advice or guidance for those folks? Well, I would say uh, um, lead with your heart and learn to listen. Um, and there are a number of ways uh, to be involved, whether that is through an institution or through social movements. Um, you know, I mentioned uh, the group of youth that uh, staged the Diane on the Great Salt Lake uh, recently. You know, these are just young people that are not willing to let um, complacency or apathy or hopelessness take over. They're taking action, and I think that they should be applauded for it. Um, and I think that there are also a number of new institutions. You, you mentioned some new ones at the U. Um, there are some new ones at Utah State, um, at focusing particularly on climate adaptation. So um, if people are interested, um, we can maybe drop some links in the show notes to the Utah State's Climate Adaptation Science Program or some of these new ones at the U. Um, and uh, if you're listening on the south end of the state, um, there are uh, um, USU satellite campuses throughout the state of Utah in, you know, from the Uinta Basin to Price to uh, Blanding. Um, and so there are a number of places to get involved and um, I, I'm happy to uh, you know, be in touch. And so shoot me an email or um, get in touch and let's talk. That sounds great, Will. Thanks for that generous offer. I also want to remind our listeners of what you uh, informed us about on September 23rd and 24th. There will be presentations about the Great Salt Lake, um, its current state of the art, and what we might be able to do collectively in the future to help out its health. Um, Will, I see you as an amazing emerging scientist who's launching a career in this important area of research, uh, both disciplinary and interdisciplinary. I've really enjoyed hearing from, from your perspective. Thank you, Will. Well, thank you. We're all in this together. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 1030 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.